In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. For this year's Advent Sermon Series, we have focused on the angelic command, do not be afraid. It's been voiced miraculously and also surprisingly to various characters in the Christmas story. The angel's message first comes to Zechariah, an elderly priest, who, along with his wife Elizabeth, are without child in a culture that measures worth in terms of offspring. Uh, that might be a bit of an overstatement, but it would have at least initiated something of an existential crisis for a righteous person who expects to be blessed, but never is. It also comes to Mary, a 13 to 15 year old virgin who is waiting for her wedding. We aren't afforded much background to Mary's story in, in Luke. But we know from her response to the angel and from her song at the end of Luke chapter 1 that she's a firecracker. She is fierce and precocious and willing to thumb her nose at the power structures that have kept her and her people down. The angelic message also comes to Mary's fiancé, Joseph, who, when we meet him in the story, he has already found out that Mary is pregnant and it's not his. This, as you can imagine, is problematic on a number of levels. With each of these three recipients, the command can be read in two ways. One addresses the immediate and certainly terrifying angelic manifestation that's right in front of them. I mean, seeing an angel in your bedroom would 
probably be very scary, and I don't want to minimize that. But I've also been arguing that Zachariah and Mary and Joseph, they're not just afraid of what they see in front of them. They also have other fears, more foundational fears even, that potentially define them. It's the fear of failure, fear that the shame experienced in community will be a reality, an ongoing reality forever. The fear of, of being alone, of being unfulfilled, the fear of unimportance, of living an inconsequential life. The fear that comes with relationships. Am I enough? Is my love enough? Will it stand the test of time? Fear of rejection, of the unknown, of not having a plan, of not having next steps. Perhaps this is all just my own reading in, but when we consider these characters, they are all facing something. So when the angel announces, do not be afraid, it's easy to hear something more than the obvious in those words. In this week's story, we meet another cast of unlikely characters who are, this time, visited by a single angel followed by a whole host of angels. The recipients of the angelic message are, of course, shepherds living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. For us, some 2,000 years removed from the first Christmas, we are unsurprised by their inclusion. You may have already known who we were going to talk about this week before we even got to the scripture passage. Linus told you about it years ago when he famously informed Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about. For Linus, a monologue of a few of the verses that were read earlier, Luke 2, 8 through 14, that's enough to explain what Christmas is all about to his friend. Christmas is shepherds and angels. It's the familiar line, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Side note, I'm reading from the Common English Bible, so if some of these phrases sound a little bit weird to you, Good. I want it to be something that is, is jarring, uh, but that's the reason why it's not as familiar as you might have known. For Linus, the true meaning of Christmas is, is all of these things which lead to the message of a Savior's birth, of the Messiah's birth. And Linus is largely correct, though my inner nerd wants to tackle so much of this story's ambiguity. The where, the when, the why, the how. The the how in the world do you deal with the miraculous, Linus? What about all the discrepancies between Matthew's version of this story and Luke's version of this story, Linus? Can we get a monologue on that, Linus? Now... When we pump the brakes a little bit, you and I can talk about these textual issues on another day. But even if we take Linus at his word, even if we focus on just these few verses, I'd like to call our attention to one key feature in the story that I think is often missed. It's missed for a number of reasons, least of which is our familiarity with Luke 2, or better, with Linus's citation of Luke 2 in the Peanuts Christmas special. It's also due to our conflation of the Bible's Christmas stories. And by that I mean we take everything that Matthew says about the birth of Jesus and everything that Luke says about the birth of Jesus and we just mash it all together. Now think of a normal Christmas pageant. Okay, you've got kids dressed up as, as sheep and 
cows and maybe some camels, other barnyard animals. You've got Mary and Joseph. These are the, the pious, very, uh, very pretty people in the community playing these roles. You've also got a baby that's wrapped up and, and laid in a manger, which remind us ourselves here, a, a manger is basically a feeding trough for animals. Um, this is usually going to be a toy baby unless you have just had an infant born in your community in the last six to nine months, which count yourself blessed if that's the case. You've got hay, you've got angels, and the angels are wearing their traditional white bed sheets uh, with a hole cut at the top, and they've also got some, uh, some sparkly halos that are attached by a coat hanger somewhere to the back of, of their neck. And you, of course, have wise men, and you have shepherds. But actually, the wise men are only found in Matthew's story, and they don't seem to visit the baby anytime soon after his birth. And the shepherds, they're only found in Luke's version of the story. Okay, so I, I know. Remember when I said that we could talk about the nerd stuff on a, a different day? Well, I, I lied. It's actually going to be pretty important for us to talk about the nerd stuff. But stick with me because uh, it's, it's very important to the, the point that I want to make here in this talk. One New Testament scholar, his name is R. Allen Culpepper. He writes, Whereas in Matthew, the Magi, the wise men, they follow a star to Bethlehem sometime after the birth of the child. In Luke, it is the humble shepherds from the local area to whom a sign of the birth is given. Now, Matthew doesn't care about the shepherds. Don't ask the obvious question here at this point. I know that you're dying to know, well, did they really go? Did this really happen? Is this story historical? That's the wrong question to be asking now. Rather, think about Matthew in this way. Think about Matthew as a film director who wants to shape his story in a certain way, to highlight certain features, to make the audience see things. For Matthew, the director, the wise men are important to his larger story. The shepherds, whether they are known or not known, they're, they're not important to what Matthew is attempting to communicate in his story. But for Luke, the appearance of the shepherds is really important. And here's why. Shepherds weren't exactly the cream of the crop in the ancient world. They weren't viewed as high-class citizens. You wouldn't expect to see them on a cast list of a movie describing the birth of a long-awaited Messiah. And that's the point. The announcement, it didn't come in, in Luke's gospel. It didn't come to Herod the king. It didn't come to the religious elite. It didn't come to scholars studying ancient scrolls filled with prophecies. It came, in this passage, to shepherds living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. In other words, it came to the outcasts, to the marginalized of society. Let's not romanticize shepherding. Again, as Culpepper writes, shepherding was a despised occupation at the time. Uh, in the first century, shepherds were scorned as shiftless, dishonest people who grazed their flocks on others' lands. 
So when it says in Luke's story that the good news came to shepherds living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night, this is wild. This is unexpected. This is something that would have caused an ancient reader to break in and say, wait, 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 wait. shepherds, what? What are they doing here? This is not who you would expect to be included in the birth of a savior. Two somewhat controversial New Testament scholars, Marcus Borg and Dominic Cross, and they explain the differences between Matthew and Luke in this way. They write, in Matthew, it's the wise men from the east who come to Jesus, but in Luke, the angelic announcement of his birth is made to shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. As a class, they write, shepherds are even lower in the social order than peasants and would qualify quite well as the lowly and the hungry of Mary's hymn, otherwise known as the Magnificat in Luke 1, um, 45-ish and following. The the authors here, they are citing this bit from, from Mary's song, which we should note only occurs in Luke's film, in Luke's version of the story. In verse 50, she sings, God, he... God shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. In Mary's song, there's this theme that's developing. It's a theme that follows who this divine message is for. And she announces quite clearly, it's for everyone, but she also notes that it's for the lowly. The proud will be brought low, those in power will be brought low, and the lowly will be uplifted, the hungry will be filled, and the rich will not. So we've got Mary, and we've got her song, and we've got these shepherds, and each of these things is telling a story in Luke's gospel. And let's let's see where it goes, because this is fascinating. Some 30 years later, after the birth of Jesus, he's no longer wrapped in swaddling, snuggly clothes, laying in his uh, horse trough bed. Uh, This is after also he has been baptized by John the Baptist, after he's been tempted in the wilderness. And these two events in all of the Gospels, they seem to symbolize the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So for Luke, this is the first thing that Jesus does when his story really gets going. And this is, this is absolutely brilliant. The first thing that Jesus does in Luke's gospel is he preaches the good news. Now, more specifically, he preaches the good news to the poor, to the prisoners, to the blind and the oppressed. He picks up these themes that Luke has emphasized at the beginning of his movie, at the beginning of his story. Luke retells this episode of Jesus's life where he goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. It reads this way, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised, and on the Sabbath he went to the local synagogue as he normally did, and he stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll 
Jesus did, and he finds the place where it's written. He goes to a specific passage, and this is the passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says that he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the synagogue assistant, and he sits down. Meanwhile, every eye of every person is fixed on him. And Jesus begins to explain to them, which, which could happen in a, in a synagogue sort of scenario. You can go, you can read the text, and you can choose to interpret or not interpret. And Jesus begins to provide an interpretation, a fascinating one. He says, today, this scripture that you all know, that is very well known in our community, the scripture that foretells a, a moment in the inbreaking of God's kingdom, today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Now, for anybody that's spent any amount of time with me, you've heard this passage, you've heard this portion of the, of the sermon 27 times over the last seven years of TRP's brief history as a church, but it's so fascinating to me. And it's something that usually isn't taught in other places. So just buckle in and, and hear me here. The placement of this story at the beginning of Jesus's ministry is unique to Luke. This story is included in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. It's not included in John's gospel, but that makes sense because John's a weirdo and he does his own thing. But this story for Matthew and Mark, it's, it, it's not that important. It's buried later on in Jesus's ministry. It's not the first thing that he does. It's just part of the larger story. But what Luke has done is he's taken this text plucked it out of its probable chronological placement. This, this isn't really the first thing that Jesus did, but for Luke, he wants to take it and place it in the beginning of his story on purpose to tell us something about Jesus and about his gospel. And it's the same thing that we've been hearing intoned in Mary's song and the, the same thing that has been intoned through the inclusion of the shepherds in the birth story. Luke is saying this message, this good news, this announcement that the Savior is here, it's not what you expect. It's for everyone. And sadly, that revolutionary message has become too familiar for us. Maybe worse, it's become distorted. When we think about fears, which this entire sermon series has been about, one of the biggest fears that we have, I think, is potential disappointment of the divine. Failure to measure up in God's eyes. A fear maybe even of exclusion. A fear of going to hell when we die. Many of us are afraid that we're not good enough for God that we aren't holy enough to be called a child of God, that we aren't loved or accepted as we are. And all of this makes sense because that's what we've heard our entire lives. In many churches, the gospel begins with an admission, supposedly, that from the womb, before we have drawn our first breath, that we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God, that we are liable to punishment. Actually, it's, it's more than that. It's that we deserve 
punishment upon our entering into the world. We are programmed, in other words, to view ourselves and everyone else as already excluded and excluded from the very beginning. And we're programmed to view God as the excluder. The good news that we are told is that Jesus took on all of our unworthiness so that we could be included eventually, which is great. But we're still left thinking how miserable we are as humans, how sinful and how broken we are. So I think we live in this constant state of the fear of judgment, of God really figuring us out. It's like the imposter syndrome that we might experience when we go to work and we're just waiting for our boss or for the people around us to realize that we're really not that good at what we do. And like our, our impending firing is just right around the corner when they really figure out how incompetent we might be. Except here in this example, the imposter syndrome for us, the person that we're afraid who will find us out is the one who already knows everything about us. It's no wonder we're all medicated. It's no wonder we all feel this immense guilt and shame for, for who we are. It's no wonder that we are all in therapy trying to believe that we are loved, that we are worthy, that we are in fact included. Now Luke's gospel is different than what we've heard. And no, I don't know what any of this means for all of the bigger theological questions that you might be asking right now. But in Luke, it, it doesn't seem that Jesus came to make us acceptable or to make us more likable or to make us worthy in some way. He came to bring good news to the poor. He came to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. He came to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to take on whatever the world gave him, all of the rejection, all of the hurt, even death, and he came to forgive people for their role in it. He came because he loved us, all of us. And that love is not withheld. We see this in part. We see this in the invitation of the shepherds. The lowest of the low who against all odds become some of the first ambassadors, some of the first preachers, some of the first uh, announcers of the good news. So maybe Linus was right. Maybe this is what Christmas is all about. Maybe instead of the guilt and the shame and the fear that we often feel, maybe this story with its unexpected twists and turns, maybe it demonstrates the free gift of a Savior who is announced to the disbelieving, the jaded, the marginalized, the ostracized, the poor, the broken, the excluded. Maybe the message of Christmas and of Jesus is less of a conditional. Maybe it's less of a threat. Maybe it's not something to fear. 
Maybe the message of Christmas and Jesus is more like a word of inclusion, a word of invited participation, a word of love that is freely given against all odds. More personally, maybe it's a message that says, despite what you've heard, what you feel, maybe despite what you have rejected, all, all of this, this entire Christmas story, the entire life and ministry of Jesus, it's all for you. It's, it's for old couples with no kids trying to make sense of their theological system that doesn't seem to be working out. It's for young girls in a patriarchal society who maybe we wouldn't expect to be prime players in this narrative, yet here she is, thumbing her nose at the power structures saying, God will bring the proud down and exalt the lowly. It's for righteous men who, like Joseph, can go against the law and the expectations set upon him to be merciful to those in need of mercy. And it's for shepherds who have been ostracized, who have been demonized by the community, who have been viewed in a certain way as unworthy. So in light of all of this, fear not, fear not, TRP. This wonderful, joyous news is for all people, and that includes you.